Good morning. Oh, I don't know who planned this service, but that was, this is poor planning. I don't know how I'm supposed to follow up any of that. <laughs> we imported Dan's British accent for the reading. And then we imported Shaleen's voice from heaven for the, for the singing. So, well, you know. It's all, it's all downhill from here. So, <clears throat> hi. I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine that you are driving on the highway, and this will be difficult to imagine for some of you, but imagine you are driving the speed limit. <laughs> you're just cruising along. You're not urgent. You're not in a rush. You're just cruising along, listening to your favorite song or whatever, when all of a sudden, you are cut off by a speeding car right in front of you, and this car comes half an inch from hitting you. And maybe you're a parent. If you're a parent, imagine that your young children are in the back seat, okay? Now, as you imagine this scenario, it's familiar to some of you, this has happened to you. In imagining that scenario, I want you to pay attention for a moment to what happens, the transition that takes place in your heart, in your mind, from leisurely, casually, calmly, non-urgently driving to what happens the moment you get cut off. And I want you to more than just imagine it, I want you to feel it in your, in your stomach, in your gut, in your chest. Do you feel it? Okay, we can all relate, yes? Isn't it surprising? I mean, it's not surprising because we've all felt this, but it's kind of alarming how quickly and really immediately things escalate inside, right? Think about what you are thinking in your mind about the person that has just cut you off. For at least half a second, you realize, oh, I could be a murderer. I could kill another human being, right? In the world of psychology, that escalation has a name. They call it hot hate. And hot hate is defined essentially as a strong reactive emotion expressed in intense anger or sometimes fear. And they say that it's typically very rapid in its um, increase, and it's also very rapid in its sort of decrease or decline. Because you know what I'm saying, like you get really angry, it kind of simmers inside, like, and literally for half a second, you realize you could do bodily harm to this person. But you give it a minute or two, for those of you who have problems like 10, 15 minutes, and it begins to at least de-escalate. Some of you are like, no, I still feel that way from that time that guy cut me off six years ago. Um, we have a care pastor here named Ben. You should go see him. And uh, we have, we have um, counseling options and all that. Okay, but you get what I'm saying. Hot hate. It's like it's immediate. Something happens and you react with such anger and then... Very quickly, it sort of de-escalates. Now, on the other side of that, in the world of psychology, there's also there's another term, and it's called cold hate. And cold hate is defined, or cool hate, cool hate or cold hate, is defined as like contempt or disgust for another person, typically expressed through um, sarcasm or mockery or dismissal. This is the sort of sort of feeling that that brokenness you feel inside. Um, sadly, often for those you are closest with. 
particularly in the season of the holidays, when you think about Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner that is to come, there might be, for some of us, probably not all of us, but for some of us, there might be someone we are anticipating seeing over the course of the holidays that we're going to have to brace ourselves, right? Because you feel real contempt inside toward them. It doesn't escalate quickly, and it doesn't decrease or decline quickly either. It just sort of simmers. You know what I'm saying? Now, all of this stuff, whether it is hot, the hot hate of road rage or the cool hate of longstanding animosity toward another person or something in between, for most of us, we can relate because the truth is we spend so much of our energy We expend so much of our energy on feelings and emotions and postures and positions toward other people that disorders our relationships with them. And this isn't, I'm not saying this because I'm trying to make anyone feel guilty. Many of us feel a sort of disordering of our relationships with some people, not because of anything we've done, but because of things, destructive things that have been done to us. This is true in our personal lives, but sadly, in the sort of divisive, hostile world that is culture today, this is true in public life. There's a writer named, a journalist and a writer named Sebastian Younger, and um, he's an American journalist, and in 2007, he spent significant time in the Korangal Valley in Afghanistan, which at the time during the war was called the Valley of Death because some of the most intense fighting happened in the Korangal Valley. So remember, this is a man who has literally seen the horrors of war, actual enemies literally killing each other. And then he came home to the U.S., and he wrote a book called Tribe, where he talks about divisiveness in our country. And in that book, Tribe, he says this. We live in a society, he's talking about right here, not in war-torn Afghanistan. Younger says, we live in a society that is basically at war with itself. People speak with incredible contempt about, depending on their views, the rich, the poor, the educated, the foreign-born, the president, or the entire U.S. government. It's a level of contempt that is usually reserved for enemies in wartime, except now it's applied to our fellow citizens. You and I live in a war zone. There is a war being waged in our own souls toward others. And there is a war being waged in culture and society at large. Some of you have heard this. Many of you have heard this ad nauseum that by some metrics, we are as a nation more divided today than we've been since the Civil War. Now, whether that is accurate or not, the very fact that some people say this means we are utterly divided. There is incredible hostility, and relationships on a personal level and on a societal level have been utterly destroyed and disordered. And into such a reality, you and I, what we long for is peace. We need peace. Last Sunday, we started a brand new series called Prepare Him Room, borrowing from that 
beautiful line in the Christmas song, Joy to the World, let every heart prepare him room. And what we are doing is we are looking at the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 9, verse 6, where Isaiah the prophet writes, God speaks to and through Isaiah the prophet and um, gives this beautiful prophetic vision of someone that God is going to send, a son who would usher in healing and renewal for all that is broken in our lives and in our world. And let me read that passage to you, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And what we're doing during this Advent series is we are taking each of these descriptors of Jesus, our Savior, And we're going to unpack further and ask the question, how might we make room, prepare room in our hearts and our minds and our lives to receive and experience the power that is Jesus in all of these specific ways? And last Sunday, we talked about preparing room for a mighty God. And today, we're going to talk about preparing room for the Prince of Peace. Now, I want to, again, note just very quickly for you, we've been doing this throughout, but I want to make sure we resource you. If you go on our website, on westgatechurch.org, and um, go to our Christmas page, there's a banner for it at the top. Uh, there's There's an Advent devotional, a digital Advent devotional that, you know, like instead of just listening to a sermon for 35 minutes on a Sunday, this Advent devotional is every single day, five days a week, there's a daily reading. It's really brief, written by pastors and church leaders all over the country that'll help you continue to trek through some of these ideas throughout the week. So I would highly recommend that. Go to our website or just scan that QR code, and um, it's free and available to you uh, online. Okay, so how do we prepare room for the Prince of Peace. First, we have to ask the question, well, what do we mean by peace? Or namely, more more importantly, what does the Bible mean by peace? I went on Google, and I um, went on Google Images, and I typed in the word peace, because I wanted to see what would come up, and I put a collage together, and this is the collage. These are Google Images of peace, right? Um, An older woman giving you the peace sign, Somebody meditating on the beach, that actually looks really uncomfortable. It's like, you know, it's all wet and cold and sun setting. Uh, I have no idea what the hands sort of, I don't know what the bird thing is. Um, And then there's a young woman, and she's turning into clouds. I don't know. And then there's a person sitting, you know, isolated, quiet on the bench. Now, I found it really interesting because what these images imply is that culturally speaking, at least, peace is understood as a, as primarily as a sort of personal inner tranquility. That's what those images imply, right? That peace is personal inner tranquility. Peace is the ability to block out all the noise, all the chaos, all the negative energy of others to, in order to find some sort of elusive interior nirvana, You know, we have, Jenny and I have two young kids, seven and four, so in our home, it is always loud, it's always messy, it's always chaotic, and sometimes I even find myself thinking to myself, oh, geez, I just need a little peace, and that's what we think peace is. If the noise would go away, I would have peace. Now, by some definitions, by some English definitions, sure, 
That's fair enough to say. It's peaceful, right? But again, remember, we are trying to ask the question, how do we prepare room in our hearts, not just for cultural versions of peace, but how do we prepare room in our hearts for the Prince of Peace, Jesus who comes to bring his peace to us. Therefore, we have to ask the question, well, what is that peace? Is the Prince of Peace, Jesus, is the peace that he brings personal inner tranquility? Is it primarily about cutting out all the noise, suppressing all the chaos so it can just be a little more peaceful and quiet? Or is biblical peace something else, something more? Ezekiel chapter 37. This is one out of literally dozens upon dozens of examples I could show you from the Old Testament and the New about peace. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's key. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And then he describes it. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so again, this is one out of dozens upon dozens of examples I could show you where the Bible presents peace, but it's not about inner tranquility. It's not private. It's not about just quieting the noise from life. It's not just about doing away with the chaos or the busyness. This is about relationship. We don't use the word covenant much these days, but the word covenant is by nature a relational word. It's about individuals, two individuals or two parties coming together and saying, we are binding ourselves to one another. And that's how peace is described over and over again throughout the scriptures. This word peace in Ezekiel, which is written in Hebrew, is the, is the Hebrew word shalom. And many of you know that word. And the word shalom is by nature a relational word. In fact, its etymology is rooted in the Hebrew word shalem, which is about payment. It's about debt. And so the word shalom essentially means living in such a way with others where there is no debt, not literal debt, but like a debt of, of, of emotion and um, personal exchange. In other words, to live equitably with one another, to do life on um, steady, even ground. Another example that I find so fascinating, that, that Ezekiel example is about God extending peace, relational peace to his people. Here's another example about two characters in the Old Testament. Some of you are familiar with them, David and his best friend, Jonathan. David would go on to become king of Israel, um, and Jonathan was his best friend. This is 1 Samuel chapter 20, and Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because Why? Because we have sworn friendship to each other, with each other, in the name of the Lord. It's relational. Go in peace. Why? Because we have peace. We have sworn friendship with each other. I'm for you. You are for me. We have peace. Again, peace, the word shalom, 
It's about pursuing equity and goodwill toward one another. Equity with each other and goodwill toward one another. The Lexham Bible Dictionary describes, defines peace this way, biblical peace. It is a pervasive concept in the Bible that most commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God and one another. Cultural peace, again, is about personal inner tranquility. It's about finding a little peace and quiet from the noise. In other words, cultural peace is about removing yourself from the chaos. Biblical peace is about leaning into relationship. As hard as it may be to name disordered relationships and then to address that disordered relationship with love pursue love and loyalty to God and with one another. The writer Bernhard Ott puts it this way, that when things are the way they are supposed to be in human life, shalom or peace exists. There is shalom when we can look God in the eye and know there is no guilt or debt. There is shalom when we as humans can look each other in the eye and ask, are you happy to see me or is there still something between us? And we can answer with a laugh, Everything is right between us. Now, in theory, this is what we all want, right? We read descriptions like this and we think to ourselves, man, that would be awesome. If all of my relationships could be like that, yes, I'm all in. It's what we all want, but this is extremely difficult. If it were easy, none of us would feel conflict. If conflict were easy to navigate and solve, none of us would have conflict. Because none of us want conflict. None of us, want, none of us desire to live with hot hate or cool hate or something in between toward anybody else. And we don't want that sort of feeling toward us. But it's hard. And here's the thing. Every single one of us can immediately, right now, every single one of us can immediately identify one or two or a dozen relationships that do not feel like they are at peace. Our lives, your life and mine, our lives are cluttered with disordered relationships. And so what do we do? How do we prepare room for the Prince of Peace to come and do his work in us, to bring his peace? I've come to believe that conflict that causes and leads to disordered relationships, um, we respond to those types of conflicts. Not all of us, but most of us respond in two primary ways. Now, there are other ways, but I believe these are the two most common primary ways in which we respond, you and I respond, to disordered relationships that lack peace. And those two primary ways are avoidance and dominance. So some of us, when we have conflict in a disordered relationships, some of us think to ourselves, well, I can just ignore my way to peace. If I just don't bring up that thing, or if I just don't go to that party, or if I just avoid that relationship altogether, I will have peace. And this makes total sense if peace is personal inner tranquility. If peace is personal inner tranquility, then avoid away, right? But biblically speaking, peace is not personal inner tranquility. Again, Peace is what? 
setting relationships right. And so avoidance doesn't work. The other thing some of us do is dominance. We think to ourselves, you know what? I can win my way to peace. I can win my way to peace. Let's put that last slide back up there just so um, folks can see it. I can win my way to peace. And um, you see this a lot on social media. You see it a ton on Facebook, right? People are just destroying one another online and they believe if I can just shut that person up, I will have peace. If I can just say the right thing, if I can just shut down the argument, if I can win, I I will have peace. They will no longer be jibber-jabbering on and on about their dumb idea, and I can finally rest at peace. Again, if peace is personal inner tranquility, this is very possible. You can dominate your way to peace. You can win arguments, shut up the enemy, and then it's nice and quiet. But there is a way in which we can win arguments and simultaneously lose people. You've done this before, right? On both sides, you have lost an argument and felt yourself so ostracized from the person that you lost to. And you've won arguments where you felt good for a little while. And then you realized this relationship is extremely damaged. I won the argument, but I lost the person. If peace is actually the setting right of relationships, a relationship of love and loyalty to God and one another, if peace is equity and kindness and gentleness and union in relationship to one another, then you cannot possibly dominate your way to peace. These are both lies, avoidance and dominance. In the book of Isaiah, again, remember, this entire series sort of is born out of Isaiah chapter 9. And the entire book of Isaiah, um, it's actually, they think, it's written in at least two or maybe three different sections. But the entire book of Isaiah, it's really beautiful for many reasons. But one of the reasons is because the book is like, it's a book um, that paints a vision for what God is up to and the sort of life he longs for us to live. And so in the book of Isaiah, there are actually two very important and distinct visions of peace, biblical peace, that confront both avoidance and dominance approaches to disordered relationships. Let me show you first. Isaiah chapter 2. This is a vision, one of Isaiah's visions of what biblical peace actually looks like. He, God, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is one of Isaiah's visions of peace. Essentially, the vision is taking instruments of war and recrafting them into instruments of gardening, bringing about good from the soil. This is a vision of peace. Instead of avoidance, the Prince of Peace calls us to enter in and do the work of crafting gardening tools out of weapons. For you, in your relationships, 
what this might mean is taking your words that you have weaponized toward others and doing the work, instead of avoiding the person, doing the work of recrafting your words into words that bring life. That's what gardening is. Instead of avoidance, it's about doing the work. This is hard work to take particular instruments and recraft them. What does the, what does the vision say? They will beat their swords. This is an action word. It's hard work. It's hard work to go from weaponizing ourselves toward one another to becoming gardeners who try to do the slow and steady work of cultivating life from the dirt. And then, Isaiah 11, another vision of peace. The wolf will, lie, will, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. This is not literal, you guys. Do not take your baby and have them play with serpents. Don't do that. It's imagery. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. Don't do that. <laughs> right? But you get the point here. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What is this? This is an image of foes becoming friends, becoming family. Instead of dominating one another into submission to kill that person's argument so that they stop talking and I could have a little peace and quiet, biblical peace says, no, can you see this person not as an enemy, not as the lion sees the lamb as prey to devour, but instead, can you see this potential foe as a friend? And by God's spirit, watch as he binds you together as family. Instead of dominating one another, we submit ourselves to the incredible work of God's spirit that can actually bring down dividing walls and bind us together. Now, a quick pastoral word. And we, I feel like we have to say this all the time whenever we talk about community or, or peace or pursuing peace. What we are not saying is that you should just allow yourself to be, um, you know, like the stepping stone of destructive people. In Romans 12, Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There are some people in life, maybe you've got some of these people in your life, who are so far gone they are so deeply enmeshed in their own destructive tendencies or their own brokenness that they do not want peace with you. Even if the path toward peace is clear, that is not the path they want to take. You do not control what others choose. Do not put that weight on yourself. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, just do what God is calling you to do. Instead of trying to dominate, listen. Instead of trying to avoid, lean in. But if the other person 
is destructive in a way that is damaging to you, one of the kindest things you can do is to remove yourself from the destructive vortex that they are creating. So it's important to say that because what we're not saying is just stay in that hyper-abusive situation. No, sometimes you've got to get out. And the way to pursue peace as you get out, this sounds so overly simplistic, but you guys, I believe this to my core, one of the most powerful things you can do, is to lovingly and consistently pray that God would pull them out of that vortex in a way that you cannot. Do not put that pressure on yourself. You don't have the strength to pull them out. God needs to do that. So how do we prepare room for Jesus, our Prince of Peace, to come and do his work within the cluttered mess of our disordered relationships? How do we do this? We do what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't avoid the conflict of broken humanity, did he? Jesus didn't stay up on um, his, his high throne in heaven looking down upon us from afar. He didn't do that, did he? This whole season of Advent, what is this? This is a season in which we remember that Jesus, the Son of God, came near. He entered our mess. Very literally, was born into our mess. Not born in a throne room of kings, but born in a dingy, dark, stable-slash-cave to a young, unwed teenage mother and a totally overwhelmed father who very likely were living in poverty. Jesus didn't avoid anything. He entered the pain of broken humanity. But as he entered, Jesus didn't come and dominate, did he? In fact, if you read the gospel stories time and time again, his followers ask him, Basically, I'm paraphrasing here, his followers ask him, hey, Jesus, when are we going to take our gardening tools and make them into swords so that we can conquer Rome? When are you going to lead the revolt against the empire? And Jesus didn't say, no, 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 that's not what I do. What did Jesus say? I'm totally paraphrasing the Gospels. Jesus basically says, he's like, no, there's a revolt, there's a revolution coming. But our weapons are not swords. Our weapon is love. Our weapon is not dominance. Our weapon is sacrifice. And his followers were like, what in the world are you talking about? That is not how you win. That's not how you win. You don't win by laying yourself down. And then Jesus lays himself down. And then everybody's like, oh, we lost. And then what happens? You realize Jesus laid himself down to go to the utter depths of death itself to do what? To defeat death from the inside. We don't, we don't establish peace by dominating. We establish peace by laying ourselves down, by serving, by listening, by loving. This is the Christmas story. So I want to ask you a question. What conflict, what disordered relationship is the Prince of Peace calling you today to stop avoiding and to enter into? What disordered relationship, what conflict might you enter in, not to dominate, but to serve, to listen, to sacrifice, to love? I'm going to ask Chris and the team to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond here. Um, 
But before we do, I just want to give you a moment because these are nice ideas, but ideas don't change anything. Like we need the Spirit of God to move in and through us, to be, to be people, men and women, who embody this sort of peace, who create room in our lives for the Prince of Peace, Jesus, to come and do the work that he's been doing since the beginning. So I want to give you a moment, just right now, bring to, to the forefront of your mind, I know it's not easy, it's probably a little bit painful, but bring to the forefront of your thinking right now a person or a relationship or several persons with whom there is a disordered relationship. Maybe you've been avoiding that relationship. Or maybe you've been so tempted to dominate in that relationship. What might it look like for you to responsibly enter in, to lean in? And what might it look like for you instead of trying to dominate, trying to win or convince them of a particular idea, instead to listen and to care? to win the person instead of the argument. This is really difficult to do on your own. But if and when you and I would create room in our lives for the Prince of Peace, then Jesus can do that work in and through us. I believe that. I believe it because I've, I've seen it. I've had that sort of peace extended to me. I want to show you a photo of a couple of women here. And the woman um, with her face in her hands is a, is a mother. Her name is Samara Alinejad. This photo was taken in 2014. And in the year 2007, about seven years before this photo was taken, Samara Alinejad's son, who was 25 years old at the time, was killed uh, in a dispute um, by a man named Balal. And... Um, Miss Alinejad's 25-year-old son was killed by a man named Bilal in a dispute in a town called Royan in Iran. Now, um, Iranian law states that Miss Alinejad, at least at the time, because she was her son's closest kin, she could choose to have Bilal, her son's killer, executed or pardoned. That was the law. And so in 2014, after all the court proceedings, Samara Alinejad chooses to have Bilal, her son's killer, executed by hanging. And the way things worked, at least worked at the time, it was a public affair. So the entire town came out, and Bilal is there with a noose around his neck and a covering over his head, about to be executed for the murder of Samara Alinejad's son. This large crowd had gathered for the execution, including Bilal's friends and family, and they start crying out, right? They start crying out for Samara Alinejad to change her mind and to pardon Bilal. And then at one point, Bilal himself, with a noose around his neck, screams. He says, please forgive me, if only for my mom and dad who are here. Please forgive me. Just on behalf of my mom and dad, please, so that they don't lose their son. And then Samara Alinejad says, how can I forgive? Did you, show, did you show mercy to my son's mom and dad? And then something astounding happens. Samara Alinejad, 
who is going to execute her son's killer, walks up the steps. And she takes off Bilal's um, head covering and she slaps him across the face. And then she takes the noose, noose off of his neck. And she pardons her son's killer. The photo you see, Samara Alinejad has her, hand, her face in her hands and she is weeping. The woman who is embracing Samara Alinejad is Bilal's mother. Because the moment that Samara Alinejad pardoned her son, Bilal's mother doesn't go to her son. Bilal's mother makes a beeline to Samara Alinejad. And she falls at her feet and begins kissing her feet, which in that culture is a sign of adoration and respect. And Samara Alinejad, right before this photo was taken, Samara Alinejad picks up Bilal's mother. And she said later in an interview, I didn't allow her to stay kneeled before me. Why? Because she's just a mother, just like me, who love our sons. And these two women embrace and they weep together in this unexpected collision of grief and gratitude. This is what is possible when we begin to see one another, not as enemies, but as friends and as family, not as whatever culture tells us that person is, but to see each other the way God sees us, as image bearers. This is what is possible when peace overcomes our disordered relationships, and this is what Jesus has done for us, made peace through sacrifice. And this is what it looks like to prepare room for the Prince of Peace to do his work, to bind us together despite the deepest of differences. And this is the sort of peace you and I long for. And it is possible because the Son of God came and died a death. You should have died and I should have died. And he picks us up he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and despite all you've done and all you will do, I love you and I am for you. That's what the Prince of Peace does. It's what he can do through us. Amen? Let's stand and sing together.